0: Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel Wednesday Bible Study. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we want you to turn to First Peter chapter three. We're going to take a look at a number of items there that people have been talking about, and particularly the emphasis on baptism. First Peter chapter three. It's right after the book of James, so those of you who are listening will end in about 25 minutes and then you can continue to talk among yourselves what we had to say we're going to begin with verse 13 of first peter chapter 3 so here we go now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, and that's kind of normal. If you keep doing good, then you're not gonna be harmed. Uh, For example, when you're driving, stay under the speed limit, don't go through red lights, stop at stop signs, then you can be pretty sure you will not be harmed by anyone. However, we know that Christians are harmed And so verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, right away, we find Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, talking about something that Jesus himself said. It's found in Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11. It's called part of the Beatitudes the blessings. Here's what they say. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So God is making the point through Peter in verse 13 that normally if you are zealous for what is good in God's sight, there'll be nobody to harm you. But a lot of times, especially in our society, When we speak God's will in regard to morality, people do not like hearing that. And they do want to harm us. But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, and that means for standing up for the word of God, you still will be blessed. And the Lord now tells you why. Verse 14 following, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I believe that that verse is Misunderstood by a lot of people. When they hear that we are to make a defense to the hope that is within us, that's called apologetics. And the word apologetics doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. It's the word for defense. But a lot of people think that we are to give a defense of the Bible by using our reason and I can't disagree with that more. The new Sunday School material put out by Concordia Publishing House has a section that they call Apologetics. But if you look at that section, every time they talk about a defense of what the Bible is saying, it's always quotations from the Scripture. They don't try to use any evidence outside the Bible to make their point. But that we know that Jesus rose from the dead, they would use verses like the angels talking to the women, that he is risen, and that, guess what? The disciples will be seeing him soon. The evidence that we have is therefore other Bible passages, not reason. And I'll tell you how bad this is getting. There is a professor at one of our universities, unfortunately, who has said the following. If they would find the bones of Jesus, or even the dust of his bones, then he would be done with Christianity. In other words, he would no longer believe. Now, there's a person who does not yet understand that we get the truth from God's word, not from any evidence. You see, if you believe that there is evidence outside the scripture to prove our faith, then you also would agree that there is evidence to disprove the faith. And I was on a phone call last night with a person who is arguing with other individuals who believe that. They believe, yes, there can be things that we would find that would show that Christianity is false. That already is a sign that they do not trust the Bible because the Bible is God's word. Even if you were able to find the bones of Jesus, which of course would not be possible because he's risen from the dead, but let's say somebody found the bones and they said this was Jesus, and all the evidence, maybe even the signs of the cross were there with the bones, that would simply be a trick of the devil. The devil can do a lot of things, but he cannot contradict the Bible. Remember, he tried to do that with Adam and Eve, and he was successful. He said, God doesn't want you eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because then you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve fell into that trap, ate of the fruit, and from there on translated original sin to every person. So when the Bible here says that we should be prepared to make a defense, I think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He was with two disciples who knew he had been crucified. They may have even seen it. And they had heard from the women that he had risen from the dead, and they were totally confused. What did Jesus do? Did he give them evidence that he had risen from the dead by appearing to them and making it clear? No, this is me. Look at me. No, he hid himself from them. How did he get them to know the true meaning of the crucifixion? He began in Genesis through Malachi and quoted Bible verses. That's the only evidence you can give to someone in order to bring them to faith. I mean, Psalm 22, pierced in hands and feet. In Isaiah, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So therefore, we have no evidence at all that what we believe is true except the Holy Spirit moving us to trust the words of Scripture. Therefore, I've said this many a time on this program, if I say something you disagree with, challenge me. And if I can't find a Bible verse for it, then guess what? I'm a false teacher. Turn the station. Listen to somebody else. Therefore, every time a preacher speaks, he needs to show that he's got the Bible behind him. Last week's sermon, I asked this question. Who in the congregation believes for certain that Jesus had a beard. Uh, Nobody put their hand up. I said, well, I believe he has. And then I made the point that when a pastor says this is true, you better challenge him, where in the Bible does it say that? And I said, it says it in Isaiah chapter 50, where Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and he talks about that they pluck out the hairs of my beard. There it is right there in the Bible. That's how you therefore make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The reason we believe what we believe is because we have a Bible verse. We don't need evidence outside the Bible. And yet we are to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Uh, I'm reading verse 16 now of First Peter 3. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, what's that talking about? Christians often act with really good motivation inspired by the Holy Spirit. When the tsunami, for example, hit Sierra Leone, Lutherans came into the area and were helping to rebuild houses, give food, give clothing, and the people there were wondering, well, was that not karma, that tsunami that God was getting even with us? for some sin we had done. Why are you doing what you are doing? And it gave them the opportunity to express their faith in Jesus Christ and his wonderful promises. Therefore, they saw that you were doing good. Some people thought that that was not what they should be doing because these people needed to be punished for some reason. But when you do good rather than evil, and people say, what was in it for you, you can explain to them, no, it's not what's in it for me. I don't gain anything by doing good because I'm already saved, not by my works, but by Jesus Christ. So we move on to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god wow is there ever a lot there to talk about you could do two sermons three sermons on that number 1 christ also suffered once for sins remember in the old testament the ceremonial laws the priests were offering sacrifices often no jesus only suffered once for sins. And who did he suffer for? The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, if you are telling someone that Jesus suffered for their sins, they're going to ask, how do you know that? I always like asking a question that the person's going to answer in such a way that he will find out your answer. And so the question I would ask here is, do you consider yourself to be totally righteous or are you unrighteous? In other words, do you sin? And they will say, well, I'm unrighteous. Well, here's the evidence that Christ suffered for you. He didn't suffer for the righteous because if you were truly righteous there would have been no need for his suffering to forgive your sins. If Jesus had been in the Garden of Eden, well, he was, but if he had been crucified before the fall of sin, there would have been no need for that because Adam and Eve were righteous. His crucifixion was only for the unrighteous, which includes everyone. And what was the purpose? Look at the next phrase. That he might bring us to God. It's so sad that even among some Christians, they get the idea that they take themselves to God. Like they'll say, well, if you want to become a Christian, you have to invite Christ into your heart. That's the work you do, and then you'll be saved. No, 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 no. You'd have to change so much of the Bible. For example, the parable of the lost sheep, you'd have to say, well, there was a sheep that got lost, and he was trying to find Jesus, and then he saw Jesus, and he ran up to him and jumped up on his shoulders. No. Jesus found him. Jesus put that stinky 100 pound sheep on his shoulders. Jesus carried him home. There's no doubt that Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, brought us to God. And how did he do that? The next phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, what we're talking about is that not only his crucifixion, but also his resurrection. And what was one of the items he did after his resurrection? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What was he talking about? Well, many people in the Old Testament, some were sent to a kind of a Hades, which was a spirit in prison awaiting the day of judgment when they would be transferred to hell. Who were these people? Verse 20 explains it. They were formerly those who did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, Persons were brought safely through water. You see, it took Noah years, decades, to build the ark. People kept making fun of him because it was a kind of a desert area. There wasn't much water around. Why are you building a boat? And he would share with them what God was going to do, and nobody except his own family were saved. Eight persons and they were saved through water. Now, that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reminds people of another, salvation through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. In other words, just as the ark was lifted above the waters, so also those in the church, which often is constructed as an upside-down ark. Take a look at the ceilings of a number of churches. That baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. I mean, who can say that baptism doesn't save when you've got all the evidence you need right here in 1st Peter 3 and that is not only adults but even infants but how does baptism save you in every other religion in the world you're saved because you remove your sin you stop sinning you start balancing out your life with good works well Peter makes it very clear That's not what baptism does. Baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not by stopping you from sinning, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? When do you have a bad conscience? I know I have a bad conscience when I do something wrong. And I'm afraid I'm going to get caught. And if I get caught, then I'm going to have a punishment. I have a good conscience, either when I don't do something wrong or when I know there's no punishment coming. Well, that's what happened to you. In baptism, and it's Peter again who gives the Pentecost sermon. Remember what he says? He says you'll receive two gifts in being baptized. The gift of the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The remission of sins. What does forgiveness mean? It means not that God gets rid of your sin. It means that God no no longer holds you accountable for your sin. So what baptism does, it doesn't remove sin from the body. But now you can appeal to God for a good conscience because Jesus has suffered the punishment you should have done. And you know that that suffering on the cross was satisfactory to the Father because the next phrase is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven, that's the ascension, and is at the right hand of God. So that's found in Revelation uh, chapter 5, my favorite chapter in the Bible. And he is there with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So while he was incarnate, As a human being, he did not make use of his divine authority. But now that he has ascended into heaven, all things are subject to Jesus. Just as at the beginning of creation, John tells us there was nothing that was made that was not created by Jesus Christ. And so on the day of judgment when you will come face to face with Jesus, it's because he is accountable for your sin. That's what was happening on the cross. And his words were wonderful. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So what baptism does is, as it saved Noah and his family, by rising above the waters, it takes the waters of baptism, which removes not the dirt from the body, but gives you a good conscience because you are no longer held accountable for your sin. And when you come to realize that, that is a wonderful, wonderful blessing from God. So that's the uh, portion of 1 Peter 3, two things that really keep in mind. When we are to give a defense to anyone, it means where's the Bible verses to back up what we believe? That's the defense. And when we talk about baptism, that saves us because though it doesn't remove sin from our body, it certainly takes care of our not having to pay the payment for our sin. For Jesus paid the ultimate price in being crucified so God will never forsake us. I'm Tom Baker and on tomorrow's Law and Gospel, we'll be talking about a new hymnal that is out that I hope nobody ever uses. So, be ready for that on tomorrow's Law & Gospel, myself with Wes Reimnitz. I'm Tom Baker. God bless. And please listen to tomorrow's Rumination Thursday.